everyone, Patrick Gray here at Ossert's 2014 conference on the Gold Coast and uh, we've got a bunch of great podcasts that we'll be rolling out over the next few days. Uh, of course, these podcasts would not be possible without the generous support of our wonderful Ossert sponsors, uh, FireEye, Datacom, TSS and Arbor Network, so big thanks to them. And we're going to kick things off with a recording of the opening keynote from the conference uh, and this talk is by Felix Linda of Recurity Labs in Germany. He is best known, of course, by his handle which is FX. FX is a very well-known hacker and researcher and his talk is titled We Come in Peace, They Don't. And uh, as you'll hear, he's not exactly Google's number one fan. Here he is. I hope you enjoy it. Um, so, good morning, everyone. Uh, thanks for getting up. Uh, it was certainly difficult for me. Uh, this is not hacker time. So when asked to give a, give a keynote here, um, I was like, hmm, so I've never been to Australia before. I have no idea uh, what, what the audience is going to look like. But um, the motto, um, trusting security, um, certainly resonated. Oh, my slides, thank you. Um, certainly resonated with me. And I figured, hmm, maybe, uh, maybe I, should, I should talk about the, the things um, that uh, we do to actually make the, the internet and computers a, a trusted thing to use and especially talk about the things that we sacrifice in order to do so. And, uh, you know, different people with different convictions um, as uh, you might not be able to read uh, as Friedrich Nietzsche, a German, uh, said, like, convictions are more dangerous enemies to the truth than any lie. So um, I wanted to um, cover that and, and, you know, see if it actually also resonates with you. So um, on the extinction of trust, which is the latest thing we're about to um, sacrifice in order to have a secure internet, um, you know, like, back in the day, come on, computer, don't fail me. So, you know, um, we're, we're killing trust on, on a larger scale, um, also on a political level, especially on the international political level, um, in order, you know, to have more law and order in the internet. So uh, the thing is, you know, back in the day, we have been warned, you know, there have been people with long hair. Uh, sitting in the United States Congress in end of the 90s and saying, you know, we can turn off the internet in 30 minutes. And you see the guy in the background laughing. Uh, he thought it was a joke. Um, and, you know, we go ahead and, like, we buy all those tools and products. Like, go outside, see yellow boxes, green boxes, red boxes. Um, they're all going to make secure, right? So we fight this. Um, we get the intelligence. We place sensors all over the internet. It's not just the NSA. Like, talk to Arbor, talk to Kaspersky, talk to anyone. Uh, they have their censoring networks. They know everything. They know what's happening. And then, you know, we spend countless hours fighting. We're fighting the good fight. You know, see, they, they stop beating each other. They, they use Xboxes now uh, because that's, that's faster. You know, uh, defense runs in the cloud. And above all, um, we really concentrate on securing our perimeter. 
right? So we have a secure system, and then we invest a lot of effort to secure our parameter. Um, if you want to try this trick, it's actually only one coin that you need. Um, <laughs> so basically, this is this is where we come from, right? And then, oh, holy firewall! Uh, now the nation-state actors are coming, right? So before it was only uh, the Russians and and Nigerians and stuff like that, and now we have nation-state actors. So what does that mean? Why do they actually, you know, come to the internet um, and you know make it more dangerous for us? Um, there's this guy, Stephen Van Evra. Um, he's at MIT, and he has this offensive, uh, defensive theory uh, that basically deals with the question. Um, why do states start wars? And I mean, coming to the internet and you know, uh, threatening the, the little trust we have already um, could con could constitute a war, right? So he says, like, war will be more common in periods uh, when conquest is easy or believed to be easy. So apparently, some nation states think there's lots to gain on the internet uh, with little effort. The second part is the more important in our discussion here. Um, states that have or believe to have large offensive opportunities. Or, and that's more important, defensive vulnerabilities will initiate war more often than other states. And we can certainly, we can certainly look around the world and say, well, yep, we see both patterns right now. Um, and the third part is that, uh, you know, those causes are not really based on facts, but on false perceptions. So the states that actually actively fight on the internet right now have these perceptions. They're not necessarily true. So, feeling vulnerable? What do we think? So this is the US power grid. Um, if you talk to reinsurance people, um, it will come um, as a slight surprise that they tell you, well, if you want to buy insurance for US utility, especially US power grid, um, they're classified as developing country. So basically, you pay the same level of insurance than an African country pays. Um, the reason being, it's basically so broken. And uh, they estimate what, what the cost is to get this done right and to fix it all. And they go like, well, Nigeria is going to be first. There's other countries. For other countries, we don't have that hard data because you know they have security by obscurity. Uh, not many people, um, you know, hack the entire Chinese power grid and uh, live to tell the story. But that doesn't really mean um, that you know they're in better shape uh, than the U.S. is, for example. Now. Uh, power grid being only one example. The, the one thing we're really uh, concerned about when we hear about nation state actors is primarily what is called critical infrastructure. Now, um, the question here being critical infrastructure is critical infrastructure actually, um, you know, considered military or is it only military? Um, and is what we what we call the internet is that a military thing or not? The fun part is um, think back in time, uh, think back to ARPANET. 
Who ordered the internet to be built? The US military. The only reason was like, okay, we have our computers on one side. If you drop a nuke on there, our computers are toast and we can't play Tetris. So, dear research people, go distribute the computers and make that we have distributed Tetris. So, um, this is what they did. So basically, um, to put it bluntly, the military ordered the internet, had the internet built. Now they want it back. Big surprise, right? Um, on the other hand, utility infrastructure, power, water, gas, you know what, um, are they strictly civil? Um, not really. I mean, if, if you want to fight a war, the first thing you do is, you know, um, turn off logistics because, you know, junior commanders um, study strategy and tactics, uh, senior commanders study logistics because battle is logistics, right? So we can't really rely on the fact that our utility infrastructure is not going to be military or whatever. And then there's this phrase that especially in the US people like to use, it's relevant for national security. So what is not? Um, I think that the concept of critical infrastructure is completely flawed. I don't think there is such a thing um, because I challenge you to name one single computer on the internet that you can be absolutely sure is worthless, that you can turn off and nothing else will happen. So is this cyber war? Well, strictly speaking, war um, is decided by the United Nations Security Council um, and is classified as armed conflict, right? So once you have an armed conflict somewhere, juice and bellow, meaning um, the, the legal, international legal situation of war applies. So Geneva Convention, for example. The Geneva Convention, Section 4, says you're only supposed to attack military targets, not civil targets. We just discussed how difficult that is. Um, there is, you know, um, the right of self-defense. There is NATO uh, Chapter 5, the mutual defense case. And this is all reasons why internationally nobody wants to say cyber war, because really, NATO, nobody in NATO wants to go to war because Turkey was too stupid to patch their computers, right? So just because the Russians own Turkey, nobody wants to go to fight. Um, so... Um, when, when the NATO people in the talent manual looked at things like Stuxnet, they go, well, it's not really armed conflict. It's more like use of force. Use of force is basically you're shooting uh, at each other, but the Security Council doesn't call it a war. Um, so basically, the, the states that made Stuxnet and deployed it, which are two states, as we all know, um, basically trampled around the UN Carta, uh, several sections, but this is not really a war. What it actually is, is digital espionage. Because you need to see, espionage has never been illegal internationally. No country in the world wants espionage to be illegal internationally. The way we deal with that is, well, we cover it nationally. If we get a spy and, you know, we grab him, and then, you know, depending on the country's culture, uh, he gets deported, arrested, or shot. Um, this is what makes online espionage so interesting for everyone because the spy is not in the foreign country, right? Um, and espionage is the practice of secretly gathering information about a foreign government, competing industry, or individual. So this brings in why we have such large surveillance infrastructures because they're perfect for espionage.
Now, uh, you will probably hear a lot about the advanced persistent threat these days. Um, my translation is it's advanced because it actually worked. They got into your system. It's persistent because they repeatedly got into your system because you didn't do shit about it. And it's a threat because you have absolutely no idea why they broke into your system. Um, that's about it. There is nothing really advanced about this. Um, oh, also what's really funny, this is the favorite picture of like showing the, the evil Chinese. If you look closely at the screens, they're actually playing a game, right? Um, talking about Chinese, um, so as um, General Patton once said, superior fire firepower is an invaluable tool when entering negotiations. <laughs> so if you have a lot of attackers, then international negotiations are really interesting. So what, what uh, happened in 2011 was uh, the countries, if you think of the countries that will make the internet a more secure place, the first two that come to mind are China and Russia. Obviously, right? So those two countries went to the United Nations and proposed a code of conduct. Meaning, um, here's a binding uh, resolution proposal, how to behave on the internet. And it says all the nice things, you know, uh, not using hostile um, ICT actions, not using irregular troops, uh, respecting the rights of each other, blah, blah, blah. And then in the fine print, it also says like, um, you know, uh, respecting the spiritual and cultural environment of the other countries. Basically, it meant, you know, we promise to stop hacking you if you delete all YouTube videos that we don't like and hand us the Gmail boxes of the people we don't like. Um, obviously, this was not accepted for different interesting reasons. Now, China and the US are not the only players, right? Um, so the, the Russians really um, know their deal in, um, interesting uses of computers. So um, they have their own troops. Um, we funnily enough call that Clicks Creek. Um, and for them, it's not APT, it's AVT, uh, for those of you that read Kirill. Because consider this. In the 20th century, uh, the most widely proliferated weapon was the Avdomat Kalashnikova. AK-47, right? Um, it's a Russian product, and it's the most widely used weapon in the world. Now, in the 21st century, uh, the most widely used online weapon in the world is called Botnet. It's also a Russian product. <laughs> so, um, what's the US's take on that? The US's take goes like this. Hmm, so, they have cyber weapons. Hmm, what can we do about cyber weapons? We can't nuke IP addresses. Well, that was for a longer time their strategy, but it didn't work really well. Um, so what do we do? We control their arms. <laughs> uh, we make cyber weapons um, something that, you know, only privileged countries and, um, and industry can actually deal with. Um, because, strictly speaking, all those bugs that they use, they're all military, because this is a picture of the first bug, it's a moth, uh, that was ever filed um, by um, a female, uh, Grace Hopper, uh, from the US Navy that found this moth in one of the early computers of the Navy. 
So they're like, well, the bugs are all military and they're all US military, so let's control them. And also, you know, real security only comes from complete surveillance, right? Only if we see everything, then we can actually fight terrorism in other nation states and, well, you know the arguments. So what the US did was they pushed for, um, in end of last year, uh, for um, additions to the Vazenar Agreement. The Vazenar Agreement is what controls arms trade internationally. And in the dual use section, um, meaning it is a weapon, but you know, if we give you a okay letter, then you can deal with it. Um, there is now intrusion software, software specifically designed or modified to avoid detection by monitoring tools, also known as NSA, um, or to defeat protective measures, right? Um, also known as firewall or security plants, um, which can be used for two things, either extraction of data or information, um, we call that data leak or Snowden, um, or the second modify the standard execution path of a program or process. This is what we call an exploit. Now, the other thing that they regulate um, is IP network communication surveillance systems equipment, especially designed and having the following, um, performing carrier grade monitoring of analytics application layer, extraction of selected metadata, um, indexing of extracted data. So if you're a carrier or a small carrier and you deploy, uh, let's say, um, IDS um, sensors all over your network, make sure that you buy them in your country because otherwise you need to fill out a lot of forms recently, right? Um, what is really entertaining is um, there is this exception here for mapping relational network of individual group or people where you go like, ah, finally, they stop monitoring us. But then there is this exception list where you can basically tell uh, whose lobbyist paid for what exception. So exception number A uh, is for marketing purposes. That was Google. Exception number B is for network quality service. That was Akamai. And number C is quality of experience. That's Amazon. So this is how lobbyism looks applied. Now, where does that leave us with hacker research? You know, if you go outside and you talk to the vendors and you actually find a techie, you will find out that pretty much all technology um, that is developed now professionally, the initial ideas, the proof of concepts came from hacker research. Now, hacker research, you know, arms dealer, arms dealer, um, it's no longer legal. It's actually no longer legal um, to distribute information about your own research uh, if you don't want to be an arms dealer. The problem here is that, you know, politicians uh, tend to have no clue about anything except for getting elected, uh, which is fine because um, even after Plato, um, this is basically the only skill they really need to have. There, but there is a defined distinction between the bugs that, you know, they're talking about, uh, which is a software error or flaw. A vulnerability, on the other hand, is actually, um, something that you can use to weaken a system's information assurance posture. It doesn't have to be based on a bug. 
And finally, an exploit is nothing else than a damn recipe how to use a vulnerability reliably to get what you want as an attacker. So they mixed it up. Um, finally, you know, the people that pushed for this regulation um, are ones that, you know, uh, want to kill something else. What they want to kill is full disclosure. So full disclosure um, had a really good reason to exist um, because, you know, with all the vulnerabilities, it, it really, really sucks to be a system administrator. And it also is really, really bad to be a software vendor because you keep writing patches and patches and unless you're Apple, you can't charge for the patches. Um, so the idea was, well, if, if there is no vulnerability information in public anymore, then, you know, this goes away. Uh, we don't have to patch the systems. Um, although full disclosure was really, really important to the point where, uh, driven by Microsoft, it is now actually an ISO standard. Um, you know, it, it will save so much money. The problem being, full disclosure is what we depend on with many products, vulnerability scanners, signature-based detections, the shiny cloud reputation stuff, um, and even testing and certification. So if the information goes away, and it already does, then what do we do? So this is exploits from the core exploit uh, toolkit. Um, and I counted remote exploits and client exploits, which is what secret services use. Uh, which is their raw material, basically. Um, and you see the drops in 2011 when the services started to buy them in large numbers. So either they don't find vulnerabilities anymore, which is very unlikely, or there is an alternative market. But then, you know, we're all secure because, you know, Mr. Peter Norton says so. Um, the, the halting problem, um, reference Alan Turing, is something that cannot be true because if you make over two billion a year on antivirus, uh, which claims to basically have solved the halting problem, then, you know, the guy must be wrong, right? So, you know, the industry guts your back. All you need to do is believe in it. Um, it is a business of trust. Um, but occasionally things go wrong, but they are open source. So, none of your problems. And, well, it, the halting problem is really not your problem. Uh, it's totally fine to parse 500 different protocols on line speed on your gateway machine in the middle of your network in your kernel space written in C in India. What can possibly go wrong, right? What can go wrong? So, Here's um, the uh, European architecture for lawful intercept. Lawful intercept, very reasonable thing. If someone kidnaps your, your goats, um, you want to know like where this email came from. You want to monitor his uh, computer and stuff. Um, you see, this is a fairly complicated interface. It looks easy on the, on the outside, right? So there shall be ally. Uh, you just say this guy, that guy record, um, and then they watch you watching porn. Um, but what it actually does, it breaks half of your internet infrastructure. It breaks things like MPLS, your MPLS cloud that your provider says is totally secure. Uh, it is not. Um, your IDS that depends on ACLs is 
suddenly off and nobody knows why. Uh, there's hard limits, so your complete network can crash because there's more than eight criminals in your in your city right now, um, and so on and so forth. So at the end of the day, um, you have you know you have to dive all the way down into the code, and all the way down into the code, you see well it can intercept IPv4 and IPv6, which makes IPv5 a laser packet because lasers happen to not pass through prisms, right? Take a prism, take a laser, try it. So, you know, we're breaking our core internet infrastructure um, for really good intentions. But the opposite, the antithesis of good intentions is good, or the other way around, right? Road to hell is paved by good intentions or uh, by bad Cisco code. Because Basically what happens is a router is made to take a packet and move it on to the next interface as fast as possible. If it needs to look at the packet, this is called punting. Now punting is a slow process, right? Um, punting basically is the same as escalating everything in your country to your CEO. Everything, every single letter, written, received, stuff like that. What happens is no matter how tall and big your CEO is, at some point, uh, the pressure gets too high and he falls over. Um, which is exactly the same that happens with our routing infrastructure. So it's really easy from your home computer with your broadband internet connection to kill your entire country's routing infrastructure. That's one of the things we sacrifice. Now, on a different topic. Um, how do we deal with information? And how do we deal with disclosure of information, right? So, whistleblowing. The United States has actually a legal definition of whistleblowing. It is the disclosure by a person, usually employee or government of government agency or private enterprise to the public, blah, 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 of mismanagement, corruption, illegality, or wrongdoing. Means whatever you blow the whistle on needs to be illegal action. It doesn't matter if you like it or not, it needs to be illegal. The problem is with, with all the uh, revelations and all the whistleblowing advocates recently, what we have is um, a different approach, the approach on um, idealistic grounds. Now, idealistic grounds have a downside, the downside being they're really easy to influence, right? So if not law is the deciding factor between it's okay to blow the whistle or not, what is it? So. The question becomes, who do we believe in, right? Um, so the internet lies. The internet easily lies. Here's a thought experiment. You take uh, two blocks. One always says the truth. One always lies. Uh, you can post one question to one block um, in order to find out whether you're famous or you get a flight to Moscow. Um, so which question do you ask? This is a known brain teaser problem, uh, but it, you know, illustrates the problem because the people um, that advocate um, unquestioned whistleblowing uh, seem to have looked at the prisoner's dilemma and realized, okay, in the prisoner's dilemma, game theory, um, to deceive the other side is the winning strategy. The problem is that life is not really a one-time event. So in an iterated prisoner's dilemma situation, um, what you have is uh, strategies that need to be nice, relating, forgiving, and non-envious, which we can't really say about this. 
So here's a manual, funnily enough, on remote manipulation uh, of people, which is blog writing, uh, dropping secrets on Fora and Twitter and stuff. Funnily enough, supposedly released uh, through the Snowden files. This is a manual by the NSA. <laughs> um, but it sounds a lot like the blogs that we are referring to. When you look at the world map, um, who could profit from you know, a large-scale whistleblowing on secret services? Everything that's not dark blue. So luckily, I live in a dark blue country. You live in a dark blue country. Everything else is not really at peace and will profit. So we take an exchange administrator or an administrator we need to exchange um, and look at his justification um, in July 2013, where the whole justification was around domestic spying in the United States. Now, uh, domestic spying in the United States had relatively little to do with all the material that came out. Um, the material that came out is about to, like, it basically just kills Cisco in China, for example. Uh, not that I'm a big Cisco fan, so I would say good riddance, but the problem is it's not because of their shitty products, it's because of, um, you know, revelations, uh, so-called revelations. And uh, so when you, when you draw up a leaderboard on who profits the most, uh, none of that says the citizens of the United States. You know, um, on top, obviously, it's, it's China. Um, then, you know, the Russian intelligence services have some, some good time. Then the people with access to the files have pretty good time um, and get to found new publication outfits. Um, and then everyone who can break the true password of a person that needed to learn PGP for like half a year in order to use it. So, um, on the subject of surveillance and the subject that is not covered uh, by the releases is take this jeopardy here. So for 100, uh, the staff at this global observer needs no authorization for data access since abuse never occurs. Uh, this entity legally monitors every communication accessible worldwide. It's founded by the people, so it doesn't pay any notable tax. Um, it has social engineered its code into around 66% of the top 10,000 websites, augmenting 37 additional signals from the source for surveillance. Anyone have an idea who I'm talking about? Hint, it's not the NSA. Um, they run what you would call a search engine, right? Um, so this company is actually Google. So remember that most of us in the, in the audience are old enough to remember that once in a time, you know, a search query on a search engine uh, will actually produce the same result for another person on another computer on another day. Remember when you told people just Google for this and that and click on the first link? Uh, notice that it doesn't work anymore when you click on sort for relevance. It no longer sorts on the relevance for you, but on the relevance for the advertiser. Um, and you know what? Back in the day, blind people could use the internet because you didn't have to load JavaScript from 500,000 different sources in order to see something. You know, this is how search looked like. You remember that? You remember when you clicked on something and you actually got a file? Um, 
because you know e-commerce actually worked way before the internet had traction. Um, in 1979, e-commerce was already deployed on TVs, videotechs. Um, but cyberspace had so much more E in it, so we had to do e-commerce on it. Which is, by the way, the reason we invented, S or Netscape invented SSL. Um, talk to me about that later. But the problem is all the great businessmen in the world found only one thing they could reliably sell online. That is you. So. What this, what this means is, um, apart from all the military use, we're burning knowledge online. Um, we're burning it at the rate where we could burn the Library of Alexandria every three months, easily. Because any idiot's profile brings more money than a fully published scientific book, right? Um, so if you falsify search and you bias search, you produce more idiots which means you produce more money. Um, universities outsource, in, in the name of saving costs, outsource all their storage, all their libraries online. It's all online, my son, right? Um, so this includes their email systems, which universities actually invented for universities for so research actually worked. Um, and you know, the only difference is we hackers Everyone laughed at us, said, like, what do you do with this collection of CD-ROMs, blah, blah, blah. Nowadays, people come back to us because they can't find shit online anymore. <laughs> and they're like, didn't you have that CD with this operating system? Um, yeah. You know, they, they look funny when you show them the tapes. Um, because the problem is, uh, what, what is important and, and valuable data for mankind, especially scientific data, uh, has very, very little financial value for the big players, right? Scientific data needs to be correct, it needs to be complete, concurrently accessible, it needs to be reproducible data. Um, that's all stuff that Google doesn't make any money with. Um, talking about money, um, while researching for this talk, I was uh, trying to find a document about ICANN and the laws of ICANN's support from the Department of Commerce. Uh, since the ICANN website really didn't work, I went to the W3C, which standardizes how the web works, right? In order to find out how broken it is. As you can see, it's quite broken, uh, 72 errors. Um, but what I then realized is, look, so. here is a Google search box on W3C website on the standard body for the internet. And then the support from this website comes from Mozilla. And Mozilla goes ahead and begs for donations from the users of this website. Now the interesting thing is Mozilla gets paid almost exclusively by Google. Um, last year it was 304 million US dollars. So okay, the, to, the biggest player uses a puppet player to control the controlling body of the internet. Oh well, imagine this would have been with Gutenberg, we wouldn't have any books by now. So, you know, it looks like you're trying to search the web, but you're not gonna find anything. And in that context, I realized, cyber war, hmm. You know, making the other uh, nation dump and absolutely clueless, it's also a way to actually win cyber war, right? If the others can't use computers without Google anymore, 
you have won your cyber war. So um, news being another nice example. So uh, breaking news, news is broken, right? News agencies, when you, when you do something in computer security, I get calls from news agencies. They're damn call centers by now. They call you, they ask you silly questions, then they collect a random amount of nouns and put them out in a newswire. The articles people write are exactly equal across publishers, across owner um, settings, everything. So the, the, who produces the, the original material? Nobody actually validates anything anymore, right? It's government or the topic, blah, blah, expert has told blah, blah, publication um, under condition of anonymity. So, you know, nobody can blame this and that. Uh, hmm. The thing is, if you want to post a comment on a website, you know, on a news website, you, you're made to fill out this capture. You know, it's supposed to tell you as a human from a computer apart. If that's the way you do that, I'm a bad computer program because I can't for the life of me figure out what those words mean. Um, on the other hand, like who does a Turing test on the website? Who tells me this is not just generated, you know, crap that I'm looking at? Because this is often done. Um, alone in 2014, in February 2014, the two biggest scientific publishers, Springer and IEEE, had to remove around 120 accepted conference papers from their archives because they were generated bullshit. Um, there was a case in, uh, in 2012 where a very simple script called SciGen, which generates papers like this, was used to generate an entire book chapter which was then given to Hacken9, which published a book on Nmap. This was the lead chapter, and it was complete nonsense, absolute complete nonsense, and even was intentionally named the DARPA Interface uh, Checking Clutch Scanner. So they called abbreviated with DICS. Um, the paper had 14 proofreaders listed. So how do you tell the difference between real news and generated news and fabricated news, there is no way right now to do that. Um, this is actually not fake. Um, this is actually from ABC on the Heartbleed virus. I, uh, on the Heartbleed virus, mind you, it's not a virus. Uh, I would like to quote this, this first line, the term Heartbleed. The term comes from the communication between two so-called hearts on a server which verified a security as U-Shop. Oh my God. Bring back the monkeys and their typewriters. They were better. Um, so hackers know that problem, right? Oh, this is from an Australian artist. I totally love that. Um, hackers know that problem. You know, if you're honestly the one who knows what's going on, uh, nobody wants to talk to you. <laughs> It's like this, this little kid in Nigeria trying to give away free money. So, um, where does that leave us? The thing is, in order to fix things, uh, we shall take the finding yourself in a hole manual and start with chapter one, stop digging, right? Basically, regulation is relatively easy. I don't ask you to read all that, um, although I, I took some care. This is 
uh, correctly compilable pseudocode and uh, how to regulate entire industry sectors on computer security. Uh, basically, all you need is you need two government agencies, uh, one doing the verification, um, the other one um, actually doing the enforcement. So, um, you know, the verification returns verdict, and then depending on whether the vendor behaved illegal, then uh, it returns prisoners, or the vendor just failed, then it returns money. So, um, it's as easy as that, uh, but it still fails. Why would that? Because the root cause of it all um, has a lot to do with crystal math and drug addictions. Um, you will ask why? Um, well, because simply, uh, in both cases, you can't do anything. Ever realize that there is only two industries in the world that have no product liability whatsoever? It's the software industry and it's the drug industry. Also, did you notice they're the only two industries in the world that call their customers users? Because you really can't do anything except for patching up things that broke. Um, because you're addicted to the next shot in a hope it's going to get better and better. So, um, how about this new approach? How about not piling stuff on stuff that's already broken in the hope to fix stuff, right? Because all we try to do every time we had an intrusion, every time we had a you know break-in, incident, data leak, whatever, is uh, like in, in the book Ender's Game, uh, we say, well, you know, we make sure this never ever happens again. More defenses, more tools, more appliances. You know what? Forget it. Get used to get hacked. Get used to do recovery and stop digging. Because at the end of the day, trusting security, that's all we have left. Because what we really needed to trust into the people, the hackers, people that have a passion in understanding and protecting computers, we made that knowledge illegal. We discourage that knowledge all the time. We successfully ex have extinct an entire generation of hackers. We told them, no, you can't be a hacker. You have to go to the university and make an MBA, right? Uh, because hacking is illegal. Hacking is bad. Um, the few survivors from that generation that I talked to, and I talked to a lot of people at conferences, they basically kick our ass with their research. Every single one of them. They're really, really damn good. But it's only a handful because everyone else, you know, moved in a different direction because they were told this is illegal. So either we go ahead and, you know, every time we have an incident, it says, well, unfortunately not available. Please go buy it in this and that cloud. Um, or we realize that my PowerPoint is broken. Come on. Damn it. Or, here we go. Or we realize that there is only one known silver bullet in computer security. That's not a tool. It's a sentient being that suffers from con consciousness. And that's people. People are better and more performant 
and actually have more liability than all the tools you can buy. So we should not lose another generation. Um, if you think this looks funny, this is DEF CON 1, um, 22 years ago. Um, see how the cute girl actually has an acoustic coupler? <laughs> um, we should not lose another generation. We should really make sure uh, that the next generation understands that they're the most highly valued thing we have in computer security, and we have to protect our global digital society. Because once we do that, um, go ahead and watch us hackers go. This is the same guy you saw in the beginning with the long hair. Uh, 10 years later, um, program manager at DAPA um, running more efficient programs at DAPA than any program manager at a US agency before. Alternatively, of course, um, you can just buy another product. I'm sure that will help as well. Um, it has a certain irony that uh, some of those products come in yellow boxes, uh, considered who they are supposed to protect you from. So, to sum this all up, if it does, um, whether we win against the bad guys, it's really not what matters. What actually matters is the way we win. Uh, what do we sacrifice and what do we keep safe? Thank you very much for listening. Did you want to